There are a lot of people in this family that surprise us. They contain the unknown, ordinary people that God placed in integral places in Jesus' family tree. They contain the foreigners, the outsiders, the ones that were supposedly outside of God's promises, but that God is bringing in and welcoming in and reminding us that we need to constantly be expanding our circle of who is a part of God's family, who really belongs. And, and they contain women. Four that we see here in Genesis chapter, or in, in Matthew chapter 1, four to be exact, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, who is identified as the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And this should be a surprise for any accredited genealogy of Jesus' time because you want people there who add to your legitimacy and your prestige. Because of the patriarchal situation of the times, women rarely do that. And that's just a, that's just a reality that you face when you're looking at that time in history. But the question is more than why women in the genealogy. The question is why these women in Jesus' genealogy. Because Matthew, there, there are a lot of other women in Jesus' genealogy that Matthew could have highlighted. He could have highlighted Sarah. He could have highlighted Rebecca. He could have highlighted Rachel. There are others that he could have highlighted that, are, that seem to be more paragon of righteousness, that would add to that legitimacy, that would add to that prestige, but he doesn't. For some reason, Matthew wants us to hear these women's stories speak to us. Jesus of Nazareth, who also is the Messiah, who is the Son of God, he has his roots and he has his identity here. And knowing these women better may surprise us because they're going to tell us things about Jesus that I think we may have forgotten or things that we may never considered before. They tell us a story of a good news that may be broader and deeper than we allow. They tell us a story of a king and a kingdom that we've pledged ourselves to, but also a king and a kingdom that operate like no other kingdom before and no other kingdom since. And so I pray that you'll have open ears, ears to hear, heart to listen, the willingness to let God challenge you and stretch you over the next few weeks because he's challenging me and he's stretching me. This is the last place that I would go naturally to preach a sermon, period. This is definitely the last place that I would go to preach a Christmas time sermon, an Advent sermon. And especially as you familiarize yourself more with the story of Tamar, it seems like the last place that we would go to preach a sermon about hope. Because this story doesn't look very hopeful. This story actually looks just really, really strange and really shocking and very, very unsettling. It's shocking on a lot of levels. It seems designed to unsettle us as readers. There's graphic sexuality. There are strange customs. There are blatant double standards for morality and ethics based on who you are. And there's an unexpected ending that kind of comes in out of nowhere and surprises us and doesn't make a lot of sense. And we have to do a lot just to understand what's going on before being able to connect to the idea of why Matthew thinks this story speaks so strongly about Jesus. 
So here we go. We'll do our best to go to a different culture and bridge thousands of years to get back to what was really being talked about here. I think we need to start by realizing that the story isn't, isn't really about sex. It is, but it isn't. In fact, the first 11 verses of the story of Tamar are just a run-up to explain how it is that Tamar becomes in such dire circumstances. To set the stage, Judah goes, he marries a woman from the Arameans and then starts to establish a family. They have three sons. His oldest son, Ur, he goes and finds a wife from the Arameans for her name Tamar. We don't know why, but for whatever reason, Ur does something or is someone who is working against the Lord's purposes. And so he dies. There's no apology made. There's no real explanation given. It's kind of shrouded in mystery. We just know that that's what's going on. <coughs> and so Tamar's given to the next son in line, the middle son. His name's Onan. There's a lot of confusion about what's going on with Onan. And a lot of interesting theology has been made out of the way Onan practices strange sexuality in his relationship with Tamar. But let's just boil it down to this. Onan will publicly accept the role that he's been given, but privately he rejects it and he rejects her. And so God puts him to death. Now, what we're looking at is a practice called leveret marriage. Okay? And it is something that is still done in many Middle Eastern and African cultures today. I actually had to do, in my master's program, I had to do a case study dealing with a tribe called the Maasai that works in Kenya and Tanzania and moves kind of in those areas. And can you baptize them if there's polygamy going on? And what they made me dig deeper into was the realization that it wasn't polygamy like I understood it. It wasn't like strange, weird, cultic South Utah polygamy. It was polygamy based on the fact that you have a high rate of male attrition in a nomadic shepherding community. The guys die a lot from starvation, exposure to the elements, danger from defending the flock. These are actual realities now. Not, I mean... They were, they were really realities back in the time of Genesis. They're still realities now. And so when those male mortality rates are higher, there needs to be a way to both preserve the integrity of that family and to provide security and stability for the widow of a dead family member, especially one without male heirs to provide for her in her old age because that's how the culture works. And so Deuteronomy chapter 25, 5 through 10 actually outlines the God-ordained practice of leveret marriage. And it's a polygamous practice by which a brother, even if he's married, would take on the wife of his deceased sibling and marry her and have children with her that would, in essence, be his brother's kids in order to provide that security. It was a sacred duty. I can't, I can't say that enough. It was, it, was, it was a sacrifice on the part of everyone in order to make it happen, but especially it was a sacrifice on the part of the man doing it. 
and if you didn't do it, you were subject to public disgrace. And, and by public disgrace, I mean like she got to call you out in the middle of the town square in front of the entire community and basically spit on her sandal and slap you with it. Okay? Yeah. Okay, let's see that happen in, like, I don't know, Judge Judy or something. Okay? You were subject to public disgrace. You were also subject to possible financial ruin if you were refused. I mean, literally, they could cut you out of the community for not fulfilling your sacred duty. Okay? It's an interesting reversal to our Western moral situation where monogamy is sacred above all, but failure to provide for family members is overlooked or gets shunted to a governmental agency. It's an interesting twist. And so as Tamar's story unfolds, we see that she is first secretly and then not so secretly abandoned. That's what's going on in the story by those who are supposed to provide for her. Like I said, Onan, Judah's second son, he publicly takes on that duty, but secretly despises and rejects it and her. But now, in addition to being abandoned twice, there is now a man-killer superstition that's attached to Tamar. And you see Judah, out of his fear of what he's already lost, I've already lost two sons, and superstition takes over and says, I mean, who knows if I give my youngest son, Shalader, who's just a, he's just like a teenager at this point, not even considered a, a, a full man in society, he may die too. And so out of his fear of loss, but still a desire to look good in the community, Judah sends Tamar back to live with her parents and basically says, look, when my youngest son is old enough, you'll be his wife. And what we've got to understand is this is a literal dead end for her. In a tangled web of social custom, she technically belongs to Judah's house still. He hasn't renounced his claim on her. He hasn't returned his bride price for her or renounced his duties. She's not free to seek a husband. He could have done that. That was acceptable as well for the, for the patriarch of the household to return the bride price and say, okay, you're free. But she doesn't have that. And there's no way that her family is going to be able to come up with another one in order to be able to... to and, and, and they couldn't anyway because she's still bound to that house. Okay? But she can't be a part of her biological family anymore either. And they actually have no social duty to her either because she's not a part of their household. She's a part of Judah's household. It's a really, really strange situation, and, I really, and it emphasizes the idea of relationships as commodity rather than relationships as relationships. And think about it. Relationships as commodity happens more today than you and I would think of. It may not happen in marriages all the time, but it sure happens in a lot of other relationships. I want to do what looks socially acceptable and what looks socially right, but honestly, when we get down to the bottom of my relationships, a lot of time my relationships with people are, what can I get out of this? What can this do for me? What sort of security or standing or status can this provide for me? That is the way relationships work. 
And in the middle of this, God is saying, no, this is not how this works. And so Tamar sits forgotten. She watches Shayla grow year after year after year, and it becomes really clear the situation is apparently hopeless. She will live and she will die in a literal no man's land. Outsider, powerless, forgotten, stigmatized by shame. And so in her desperation, Tamar reaches for hope in a very unconventional manner. She gets Judah to do himself what he won't give his son to do. She dresses up as not just a common harlot. That's, there's, there's this interesting interchangeable going on here because what she gets referred to is a shrine prostitute. She was actually fulfilling a Canaanite social function or dressing up like she was. This really interesting blend of like spirituality and sexuality that was a part of a lot of, of, uh, of, of Canaanite mythology and, and religion at the time. And she basically gets Judah to engage with her in the way that Onan was supposed to, in the way that Shayla's supposed to, but won't. And the interesting thing is, is that the Bible doesn't condemn or condone her deceit or her practice. And yet when the dust settles, it is Judah who proclaims, in essence, as a mouthpiece of God, she's the more righteous one in this story. What am I supposed to do with that? Okay, because, I mean, I can tick off all of these things that assault my sensibilities. There's, there's adultery going on here. There's idolatry going on here. There's deceit going on here. There's incest going on here. At least as I understand it. The funny thing is, is that as leveret marriage works, there's not incest going on. And actually, there's not adultery going on. At least there shouldn't be. But because Judah hasn't actually taken up the pledge to do what God asked him to do, there is. It's a very, very tangled thing, and it's hard to untangle. So to get to the heart of it, okay, because it doesn't make sense. She disguised herself as a temple prostitute, engages in this incest, becomes pregnant out of wedlock. Okay, we would kick her out of church and town in an instant. We would do that, wouldn't we? You guys aren't nodding your head either way. You seem very uncomfortable right now. Okay? Let me tell you a story. There was a girl who was 16 years old in 1976 in Oklahoma who met a guy and in a lapse in judgment got pregnant. And do you know what happened? Her family was a good Christian family. And so they sent her out of town. They sent her to Colorado to live in a foster home, 
give birth to the baby, give it away, and then she could come back home. And the reason I know this woman is because she's my mom. And that's what I found out when I was 18 and I could open up the sealed records on my adoption and find out who she was. It's not to say there's not something redemptive going on in this story. Not like there's not something redemptive that's gone on in my story. But it's unsettling and it should be. See, because Judah's ready to do more than when he, when he finds out that she's pregnant than just kick her out of town, okay? The Levitical penalty, the penalty under the law, would be stoning for adultery, both parties, by the way. Both parties. That's bad enough, but Judah wants her burned alive. Okay? I don't find anywhere, in, anywhere, in Levitical law, where it calls for somebody to be burned alive, unless they're practicing, check this out, unless they're practicing that role of like sacred prostitute idolatry plus sexuality thing he calls her out that he knows exactly what she's been doing why because he's participated in it with her like the double standard is just it it kills me how's the table like how do you get to that point where you can ignore everything that you've done and then go like for the maximum penalty on everything that she's done. I don't know. I don't know how you get to that point. But just as, just as amazing is how is it that the tables turn so quickly to this proclamation, this unexpected reassessment of guilt and innocence? Simply because that's not how God chooses to work. That is not the way he does stuff. I believe it's because this story has a radical critique of our morality at its heart. It has a critique of morality for Judah and for those who are willing to read and take this story to heart. And so here's what I think we need to learn. And here's where I think this story connects to Advent. There has been a clear double standard for the man and the woman, the have and the have not up to this point. Judah seems to feel free to do whatever he wants without consequence, but Tamar's life is on the line for the same act done out of a conscious need to survive. But that's the thing about conventional morality. It's not always that moral. It would have been socially acceptable if Judah in his pride had condemned her and she in her social shame had been executed. But the Bible lets us get in Judah's head and see the conflict for a second. He holds his own staff. He holds his own bracelets. And he holds his own signet ring in his hands. As his as his daughter-in-law is walking to be burned at the stake. These promises that he made to an unknown prostitute to be a man of his word and provide from his resources. And he gets to face up to the truth that he actually has no personal integrity whatsoever. 
even if he has reputation, even if he has law, even if he has conventional morality on his side, that's not really what God is concerned about. God is concerned about the heart. He would give a goat to a temple prostitute, but he won't give security to his own daughter-in-law, who in her own worldly way has more hope and more belief in justice, is willing to risk more out of that hope to see justice happen than he is. There has to be a fresh definition of righteousness, a new norm for right living in the eyes of God. If I really understand this passage. And where I understand this passage is I understand it out of the mouth of Judah's descendant in the Gospels. From the one who much has been given, much will be required. And of those whom people commit much to, much will be demanded. Those come from the lips of Jesus. Here's the thing, not much, in fact, nothing has been given to Tamar. And so she's not indicted for a whole lot either. By contrast, Judah is the one to whom much has been given. He has heirs, he has wealth, he has community standing, and so God would ask much of him. Much more than the conventional morality of the day. Judah, out of fear, fails to risk what God, out of love, ultimately will. His only son for the sake of the helpless. To offer them hope. And so in Matthew 5, the distant descendant of Judah and Tamar stands on a hill. And he proclaims these words to those who will listen. First, words of hope. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be filled. And then he speaks words of challenge. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, what good is it for except to be thrown out? If your righteousness is not able to transcend the morality that's around you, you don't actually have a place in the kingdom of heaven. If Judah and Tamar are to be taken as models of faithfulness and unfaithfulness, it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to know where in this story Jesus of Nazareth would have found his kind of people. Does it? He's the king of hope. And his message is a message of hope to the hopeless. And so hear the story of Advent, hear the message of the gospel, hear the reality of Jesus coming. If you have been forgotten, if you have been ignored, if you are the outcast, if you are in despair, if you are forgotten, this gospel of Advent is for you. The Lord sees you. The Lord knows you. And he is coming soon. 
and hope is coming with him. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness like Tamar, take courage. Hope is on the way and so is your righteousness. And you do not need to seek it in the world because your deliverer is coming. Let's be honest. Most of us aren't Tamar. Most of us are more like Judah. We've been given much. And so much of us is asked as disciples. For we're called today to be bearers of that hope, to be the justice of God for those who don't have it. That's our message of Advent. Tamar's committed the kind of sin that the good people prefer to condemn. She's engaging in deception and illicit sex and bringing damage to a good family name. The question is, is who would our rabbi stand with in this story, though? Who would our teacher, our forerunner, our pioneer of faith, where would he be? Our morality is called to supersede the morality of the good folks around us because we aren't good folks. We're redeemed sinners. And redeemed sinners don't sit in the conventional morality. Redeemed sinners become beacons and agents of hope and agents of that redemption called to risk and follow the one who embodies the new righteousness. A righteousness that refused to be satisfied with checking the boxes of what is socially acceptable and is more concerned about the sacrifice of self or sacrifice of private interest for the sake of offering hope and redemption to those around us. That's the new righteousness. That's who we are. Church, you're going to encounter Tamar in your life this week. She may be a she, she may be a he. I don't know who Tamar will be, but you are going to see her. The question is, will you see her when you encounter her? Because if you do, her story is going to remind you that we are all people who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And God bless you, you have found it but what are you going to do with the fact that you found it? Because much has been given to you. By the Holy Spirit, you are now a receptacle of all the power and all the grace and all the hope of the enthroned Son of God. How are you going to offer that hope today? How are you going to offer that hope to her when you see her? How will you proclaim the anticipation of the coming king and the hope that he brings to her?